leaders back there waiting to greet you. Well, good morning. It is good to be together. It is good to see you all. Uh, my name is Mike McGarry. I'm the youth pastor here. And uh, Pastor Steve and Pastor Cody are both on family vacations. Uh, and so you get me this morning. You're welcome. Um, but wow, wow, wow. I feel the love. Um, I paid a few people off in this section beforehand. So thanks for cooperating with that. Um, happy Father's Day to you. And um, before we uh, dive into Genesis chapter 3, uh, I do have some sad news to share. These have been uh, a few trying weeks here for our SSBC family uh, with multiple losses. Uh, and uh, this past Thursday, we lost our dear brother, Paul Bradbury, very suddenly uh, and unexpectedly. So, of course, please be praying for Jane, for Sharon, for Ruth, for the family. Uh, they're a bit overwhelmed, understandably, by the, the number of people contacting. So if you've reached out and you haven't heard anything back, um, it's not personal. Uh, just uh, pray and be present as much as you can um, while giving them space to process uh, the shock of this, this loss. So would you pray with me uh, for the family and uh, for this sermon? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his life, for his faith, for his quiet servant heart. Lord, would you raise up more Pauls in our church, in our families, in our communities. Lord, would you comfort Jane and Sharon and Ruth and their families in this season. Lord, life is so unpredictable, and we don't always know what's going to happen, even when we think we do. But we entrust ourselves to your hand, and this is what we come to church to remember, is to remember that, that you are good, and that you are faithful, and that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose. And so as we study Genesis 3 and talk about the reality of sin in this world and about the aftermath that sin has brought into this life, the suffering, the death, the curse that we experience daily in many, many forms, Lord, help us to remember that you are leading us home, that there is still a heavenly Eden, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem that we will one day call home. And so as we long for that heavenly home, and as we live and experience the reality of the brokenness and the curse of sin, Lord, would you help us to remember that you are good, and that you are trustworthy, and that you are leading us home. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so what 
is wrong with the world? I think this is a question that many of us ask often, right? What is wrong with the world? And as I ask it, I see a few people kind of putting their hands up like me, right? Um, This is one of the most important questions that people ask. And many have concluded, understandably, that God must not exist because of the suffering that we experience. There's just too much suffering in this world for God to exist. Now, I get that, but it does lead me to wonder, if God does exist, how much suffering would he allow? Right? Like, if there's too much suffering for God to exist, how much suffering would be an acceptable level of suffering? Right? And aside from that, how do we account for all the suffering that we would experience, but he protected us from? And we don't even know about it. How do we account for that? Maybe we only experience a small fraction of the suffering that would be coming our way if God was not preventing it. Well, today, we're reading and reflecting on Genesis 3, focusing on verses 8 through 24. I'm talking about the aftermath of sin. Last week, we heard Cody describe humanity's first sin, uh, which was really an uprising against God. It was an attempt to sit in God's throne and to be our own gods. It was about more than just eating the forbidden fruit, but about why. What were they trying to claim? And so now we'll look at the consequences, right? Recognizing that we ourselves continue to experience the aftermath of sin. But there will be a day, I'm sorry. There will be a day when everything wrong in this world will come untrue. And so let's read this morning's passage and then we'll pray. And while we're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 24, you can't understand 8 through 24 if you only start in verse 8. And so we're going to read all of Genesis chapter 3, uh, including the part that uh, Pastor Cody preached on last week. If you missed that message, I strongly um, recommend you go home immediately and listen to that during your Father's Day brunch. I'm sure there's nothing you would rather do. So you can open up and follow along on page 2 in your pew Bible. Um, The scripture passage isn't going to be projected up on the wall, but I do want you to follow along. So use those pew Bibles or the Bible that you brought with you. Again, we're in Genesis 3, so (laughs) it's page 2. All right, here's what it says. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. No. You will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So that's from last week's message. This is starting in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave me. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from, from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return from the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. So what do we see here? We see our story. We see three distinct scenes within the story of, we see an opening trial Right, where they were hiding and God's questioning them. We see a sentencing where God issues the verdict upon those who are guilty. And we see the outcome of that sentencing and what happens. And first, this opening trial is verses 8 through 13. In verse 8, 
It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can you imagine that? God is walking, like, God's not floating. God's not hovering throughout the garden. God's walking in the garden. And they hid from him. The perfect intimacy that they had prior to sin, their perfect intimacy, face-to-face, walking with perfect harmony with God. Now they hide. Sin led to shame, and shame led to fear, and so they hid from God. And don't we experience that same exact trajectory? Right? How many of us have stayed away from church or from Bible reading or from prayer or from fellowship or turning down ministry opportunities because we are carrying this sense of guilt and shame over our sin? And when we do come together, we dress up and we cover our nakedness with fig leaves. But our fig leaves look like buttoned-up shirts and pretty dresses. Genesis 3 highlights the guilt and shame we all experience as sinners before a holy God. Right? Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, there is something wrong with me. Right? So guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about who you think you are. And both of these can be absolutely crippling. And I believe that as a youth pastor, what I've observed is younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, and down, are increasingly becoming a shame-based generation. So whereas older generations focus more on what you've done, right and wrong, black and white, the younger generations focus on, I am bad. It's not just these things that I've done, it's who I am. Right? And so what do we do with that? My desire, and the Bible's desire, is not to heap guilt and shame on anyone's shoulders, but neither is it to minimize the reality of our guilt and shame before a holy God. Because minimizing our guilt and our shame doesn't cause those realities to become any less. That's exactly what we see Adam and Eve try to do here. Right? They try to cover it up. They try to hide and run away. But one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible looks the reality and the effects of sin right in the eye without flinching and without blinking and says, God is good. God loves you. God is calling you to himself. So whereas guilt and shame lead us to hide from God, God comes to Adam and Eve with a question. He simply says, where are you? Did God not know? Of course God knew. Of course God knew. But he comes to them, not with lightning bolts in his fist, just blasting them out of their hiding spots. He comes to them like a patient 
loving father and says, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? What's happened here? He gives them an opportunity to confess. And so I'm calling this the opening trial, not because God is joyfully interrogating Adam and Eve, but because he's asking them questions about what happened. And so when questioned, how do they respond? First, they hid. And the next thing they do, that we do too, right? They blame. Adam blames, quote, the woman you gave to be with me. Right? I know us men, we never still do that. Right? I mean, it's Father's Day, so this is our day. We're perfect, right? It's always the wife's fault, right? It's always... It's always, right? No, like, come on, like, own it. Right? And then Eve, not to be outdone, blames the serpent. The devil made me do it. I mean, in, in reality, they're both kind of in a circular way. They're both blaming God for their sin. The woman who you gave me did this to me. What was I supposed to do? And Eve's like, well, why is the serpent here anyway? Hmm? James 1, 13 through 15 says this. says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I mean, James was clearly thinking about Genesis 3. Very clearly. And so he takes Adam and Eve to task. He says, don't blame God. You ate because you wanted to. You sinned because you wanted to. God isn't complicit in their sin. God isn't complicit in our sin. But it's just so natural and it's just so easy for us to blame others. Have you ever been friends with someone who was never wrong? Right? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, on one hand, I want to just be like, wow, I can't believe the confidence you have in yourself. And on the other hand, it's like there's this constant sense of always being the victim. Right? It's always, if, if this person did that differently, then, like, I, everything always comes to make me look bad, but it's not my fault. And that must be exhausting. And if you can't think of any friends you have like that, then you might be that friend. (laughs) So, a little self-reflection. But that's an anti-Christian attitude. I mean, Christians are people 
who know how to confess their faith. I mean, if you don't confess your faith, if you don't confess your sin, you are not a Christian. Christians are confessors. We know how to own our stuff. We know our junk, and we're not ashamed of it, and we don't live under the guilt of it anymore because we know it's been paid for. So why would we hide the gift that God has given us and the the gift that God has covered for us and the gift of freedom from these things that we try to cover up? Instead, our baggage is our testimony of the work that Jesus Christ has done in our lives instead of shifting blame to others so we look good. Instead, we own it and say, and isn't it incredible that God still saved me? So if he can still save me, guess what he can do for you? And so next we see this, the sentencing, right? The sentencing of those who are guilty, verses 14 through 19. First on the serpent, right? The Lord God says, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Now we'll put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This doesn't mean that snakes had legs in the garden. It's a statement about the low dirt-eating status of the devil. As much as I hate snakes and they really creeped me out, This isn't necessarily a curse against snakes as much as it's a curse and a sentence pronounced against Satan that in the midst of the glory of the Garden of Eden, Satan is a serpent. And so Satan and all the fallen angels are cursed from the very moment that sin entered the world. God promised the gospel Let me say that again. From the very moment that sin entered the world, God promised the gospel. Did you see that in there? It says, and he will strike your head, right, the offspring of the woman. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Which would you rather have done to you? Right, that we as the offspring of Eve have been bit on the heel Right? That we have suffered the effect, the poison of the serpent. But Jesus Christ, who was bit on the heel on the cross, who died on the cross, rose from the grave and crushed the serpent's head. The Satan's plan for humanity was always doomed to fail. That sin leads to death. They always go together in Scripture. Wherever you see death, you see sin. Wherever you see sin, you see death. Always linked together in the Bible. But our God is the God of life. He judges sin. And those who continue to hide from God and to cover up their sin stand under judgment. But the grace of God was promised from day one. We have never been without hope. 
God's curse and sentence for the woman. Verse 16, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Here we see uh, God addressing two important missions that God gave to humanity in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Right? First, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And God created Eve as a helper for Adam. Again, if you missed that sermon uh, a couple weeks back, go and listen to it. Because Cody did an excellent job explaining uh, what that means for a woman to be a helper. Right? It's more like a battle reinforcement than a servant. Right? It's more of someone to come alongside in the same mission as you. That because you can't do it on your own, so you work together as teammates and as partners in the same battle together, right? And so we see these two callings, right? Be fruitful and multiply, and for the woman to be the helper for the man in, his, in Adam's mission to keep and to guard Eden. And now we see that being fruitful and multiply will come with great pain. There are many here who can testify to that. And we see that Adam's de- or Eve's desire will be for her husband. Now, that word desire isn't just like, oh, he's just the greatest. I mean, Tracy says that about me every time. Any of you talk to her, I know. But, you know. Um, it doesn't mean that she'll desire him in some romantic sense. The word that's translated as desire was used to, distra- to, to describe strong feelings of intense desire that one person had for another, but it wasn't always healthy desire. For example, in the very next chapter, in Genesis 4-7, we read, God warning Cain that sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Desire is for you. Same exact word. Right? So you think about a wolf chasing its prey, It's that type of desire. So what started out as a shared mission between Adam and Eve in the garden has now become the battle of the sexes. And this is where it started. Right? Blaming each other, throwing each other under the bus, and then the curse saying, you were partners, you were helper." But now your desire is to overtake and to dominate. And now it's just constantly a one-upmanship type of situation. Next we turn to the curse on the man. Verses 17 through 19. It says, the, curse, uh, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return from the ground, or until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Whereas Adam was put into the garden to work it and to keep it, the ground would now work against him. The thorns and thistles, and in this case in New England, rocky soil, make the labor hard. It's important to notice that. The work isn't part of the curse. They didn't just get to like 
hang out with like the animals in the petting zoo all day long. There was, there was work before the curse. There was work before sin. So work is not the curse. Painful toil, thorns and thistles, your work working against you was the curse. And not only was Adam cursed, but also the earth was too. It's easy to miss that. Right, that creation itself was cursed within God's sentencing of Adam. He says that the earth will produce thorns and thistles. And this reflects the reality that all of life bears the curse and the aftermath of sin. Droughts, earthquakes, tsunamis, mosquitoes, cancer, mental illness, all sorts of things that we suffer that are not necessarily the automatic result of sin is still the result of sin in the general sense, although not in the personal individual sense. And so we live in a broken and fallen world. And we are cursed but not without hope. Right? Our God-given mission was marred by sin. Our relationships were twisted into a competition our work is corrupted by painful toil. Our world grows thorns, earthquakes, droughts. When we look at the totality of God's sentence of sin, it's not an exaggeration to say that we truly live under the curse. Everything has been corrupted, twisted by the reality of sin in this world, so much so that our own bodies and the earth simply don't work like they were created to. Some of the suffering we experience in this life is the direct result of sin, and some of it is simply the reality in this world that we broke. But once again, it's important and incredible to remember that we serve a God who promised to crush the serpent's head, and he clothed Adam and Eve. Think about that. Right? In verse 20 24, right, that God clothed them. Right? God looks at our sin, our guilt, our shame. He looks it right in the eye. Walking in the garden, and he says, where are you? Where are you? Are you hiding? Are you covering yourself up? Are you blaming someone else? Where are you before the Lord? God doesn't minimize sin. They were guilty. They had reason to hide. And some wonder if this sentence, if this curse was too extreme or overdone. But when we think that way, we need to remember what sin really is. Right? That sin is a created being saying to his or her creator, I don't trust you, I don't believe you, I don't need you, I am going to do or not do what I want instead of what you say. I'm going to live my own truth. So what do good parents say to that when their kids say it? What do good teachers say to that when students in the classroom 
say it. What do good police officers or judges say to that when perpetrators of crimes say, I'm going to live my truth? Right? This is why we get so angry when injustice and abuse is covered up, overlooked, or simply accepted. Because we know that what was done was wrong. It was evil. And the person who did it shouldn't simply be let off the hook. That's not what grace means. Grace doesn't just say, oh, it's no big deal. So where do we get this drive for justice? We get this from God himself, who is perfect in justice and perfect in grace. And so while God issued his verdict, he also promised that the woman's offspring would crush the serpent's head and he clothed them. Right In verse 21 it says, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife. He clothed them. Where did those skins come from if not from a sacrifice? Right, That God made a sacrifice for Adam and Eve. We see this pattern throughout Scripture. As soon as the very next chapter, where Abel sacrifices the firstborn of his flocks and it's received, and where Cain offers a fruit offering and it's rejected. Right, we see this pattern throughout Scripture where the offering that is offered to the Lord of a blood sacrifice is required for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we see this reflected all throughout the rest of the Bible. That God made the sacrifice so that Adam and Eve would be clothed. That he clothes them with a promise that the serpent's head will be crushed. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to be justified. That when we are justified before holy God by faith in Jesus Christ, what we are declared righteous. Right? That we are declared to be robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin he sees the righteousness of his own son standing before him, covering us like Adam and Eve. At the same time, we know that God will bring us back home. Right? This is not the end of the story when they're kicked out of the garden. We see this in Revelation 22, verse 1 through 5, where the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden and the Bible ends in the Garden of Eden. It says, Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its, fir- its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and the servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the lamp. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, 
because God, the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so we begin in the Bible in a garden, and we end in a garden inside of a city. Right? So we see that culture has grown and developed, that the calling of humanity to keep and guard the garden, to this cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to expand and to build on what God has given us, has grown and developed into this new Jerusalem right, that has come down from heaven with a new garden of Eden at the heart. And we enter in by the blood of the Lamb of God, of Jesus Christ. It's important to remember, Genesis was written to the Israelites while they were wandering through the desert. Homeless former slaves who were trusting their God to give them a new home. And we today are Christians who consider ourselves citizens of a heavenly kingdom, one that will be established when Jesus Christ returns again. So friends, Genesis 3 reminds us of the world, that the world we live in is not our security. This world is not our hope. This is not the dream. But God will bring us home. He will establish that heavenly city the new Jerusalem, according to his power and love and grace. And he'll establish it through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So friends, look around you. If you look around and you're overwhelmed by what you see, then remember Genesis 3. This is the Bible's story about what went wrong. And even more than that is the message that this isn't a hopeless story. If you're not a Christian, would you stop hiding? Drop the fig leaves, metaphorically, and confess your sin. God won't pretend that your sin doesn't matter. But he will not blush. He will show you incredible grace. That although your sin was great, his love and mercy are infinitely greater. So much so that he died your death on the cross through Jesus Christ so that you could receive the freedom from the curse of sin. So that you could receive a greater Eden when Jesus returns. And for all of us, this world is marred by suffering of every kind. The Bible never avoids that reality. There aren't always easy answers to complicated questions. But what we do know is this. Sin came into the world because Adam and Eve sinned and doubted the trustworthiness of God. And everything that's cursed in this world flowed out from that. We don't know everything, but God has given us enough to have confidence that he really is good, and that he really is trustworthy. And he has never left us without hope. He promised the gospel from within his sentencing of sin. And in the aftermath of it all, he clothed Adam and Eve, 
And he continues to clothe us today in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as he leads us back home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we trust you. We praise you. Lord, in the midst of this crazy world, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our trust, that you would open our eyes to see your goodness. Father, thank you for clothing us in Christ. Thank you for the promise that the serpent's head will be crushed when you return, even as the sentence on the serpent has been secured and affirmed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So would you give us new life and would you renew our hope each day as we long for this heavenly Eden. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.